Welcome to the First United Methodist Church. We hope our sermon broadcast will bless you. So I invite you to open your ears and your hearts as we read the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who sent me to be judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store all this extra. Then he said to himself, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some years ago, before he was a bishop, I believe, William Milliman, who was uh, for a long time dean of the chapel at Duke University, wrote this about this particular text. In this Sunday's gospel, Jesus begins with the comforting word, don't be afraid. Elsewhere, he's told us not to be afraid in the middle of a raging storm or in the dark of night or when he confronts us like a ghost after resurrection. Here, however, our fear is connected to our possessions, our purses, our treasure. And then he adds a command, sell your possessions and give alms. Jesus' injunction not to be afraid when linked to our money is curious. In last Sunday's gospel, Jesus warned us against greed, yet I dare say that most of us do not accumulate wealth due to our greed, or even for the fun of it. Our main motivation for our acquisitiveness is fear. It is as if today in his teachings on wealth, Jesus has last gotten to the heart of the matter. Because I am just a few years away from retirement, he goes on, I keep a close eye on the performance of my 401k. Even bishops do that. I keep a close eye on the performance. I've heard horror stories of people who live longer than their means of support, and I fear poverty and dependency in old age. As Jesus says, my accumulation of treasure is revealing my ultimate concerns and commitments and my greatest fears. I fear want and dependency more than I fear God. The judgments of the market mean more to me than the judgments of a righteous God. So Jesus' concluding warning about God coming upon us unexpectedly is a challenge for him. In a way, my possessions are a means, he writes, even if an unconscious means 
of securing my life against the nocturnal incursions of a God who threatens to rip off everything I've got. God as a thief? Well, it's not one of the more flattering images of God that's presented in the Gospels. Don't be afraid of poverty and dependency, downturns in the market, and poor portfolio performance, Jesus seems to be saying here. If you want to be afraid, be afraid of God, because God is the one who shows up just when we least expect it, in the middle of the night, breaks in and rips off everything that you thought was secure. Be prepared. Start making really prudent investment decisions, not as the world makes investments, but those that are made out of a belief in a sovereign and righteous God. A pastor in the church of another denomination recently left a successful pulpit. Now he's under treatment for depression and in a last-ditch attempt to save his unhappy marriage. When most men his age are thinking retirement, He's having to start over and rethink the entire course of his life. My heart went out to him, Willimon writes, in his misery. I really believe that God can work through all of this to give birth to something new and good for you, he said to this other pastor, who responded, let's hope so. It sure is tough to worship God when God gets into one of those destructive modes. Jesus warned us. What a disappointment. I'm sure he must have been quite perturbed. He had walked all that way to see Jesus, to hear him, and the one he'd heard so many people talking about, the one who had made the temple authorities angry and perplexed with his radically different ideas of justice. He had come on the odd chance that this wise man could help him, and he managed to drag along his brother, the source of his problems. They had watched and listened to Jesus as he spoke and taught, giving a new sense of hope. They heard him preach about freedom and fairness and sharing and caring for the poor and marginalized of society. More importantly to him at the moment, however, was the fact that he had seen growing enthusiasm and excitement in his brother's eyes as he listened to Jesus. Certainly, that would make him that much more likely to listen to what Jesus said. If only he could get Jesus involved. So he had taken his brother's hand and pulled him along, hoping to get Jesus to help settle their dispute. Jesus, he yelled as he approached the inner edge of a tight circle, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus looked around, and their eyes met. Yes, he'd heard him. And he looked as if he was about to answer. Oh, listen, dear brother, he thought to himself as he glanced quickly at his brother. Listen to what the master will say to you. Except when he looked back, Jesus hadn't broken eye contact to look at his brother. He was still looking at him his eyes piercing through him, burrowing down into his soul. And then he was speaking, still without looking at the brother, still looking at him. Friend, he started, who sent me to be judge or arbitrator over you? And then, finally, he had broken eye contact, looking back through the now silent crowd, saying something about being on guard against all kinds of greed. 
It was his brother who was greedy, not him. Jesus had said more, but he didn't hear it all. Something about a rich man getting richer. He heard bits and pieces for a moment, but then nothing at all. He was in shock, rapidly withdrawing into himself, trying to figure out what had just gone wrong here. What had he missed? He'd been so sure that Jesus would side with him. He wasn't being greedy. He just wanted a fair share, 50-50, a chance to make it on his own. He didn't want to rely on his older brother all his life. Now he'd never get anywhere with him. All he had asked for was a chance to have some sense of independence and security. Was that so wrong? Some of you already know a little bit about what I did before I went to seminary and began this journey of being a pastor. In May of 1980, after two years of college for me and four years for Claire, we were married. For many reasons, we moved to Colorado, where I intended on finishing college and going to theological school. But within weeks of our arrival, we both had jobs at Domino's Pizza, a company I had worked for in Adrian during my first year of college. By the end of the summer, when school was to start, I had made my way up to assistant manager and then manager. I didn't have much time for school or energy for it either. And before I knew it, I was failing I think I wrote just about every class, but I think it was every class because they just stopped going. And I don't know that my father ever knew that I'd wasted all that tuition money he paid. Something had to give. And I didn't think we could live on one income, so I dropped out of school. Eighteen months later, in the spring of 1982, our daughter Catherine was born. She spent three weeks in intensive care because she was born too soon. And there was great joy and relief when we were able to bring her home. That same year is when we franchised with Domino's in western Colorado in the town of Grand Junction. And the store was right across the street from a college. So you know we did well, right out of the gate. I still fully intended to enter the ministry Someday. It's just I felt that we needed a certain amount of security because everybody needs that, especially when you're taking up a new journey. It had been obvious I couldn't work full-time and go to school. Juggling just wasn't one of my gifts. And Claire probably wanted to enjoy juggling work and motherhood. So we entered the pizza business with the idea that we'd build the business and then after a couple of years sell it and live off the profits while I went to theological school. By the winter of 1983, things were going well enough that we had a full-time manager working for us, and I was able to work less, so I enrolled back in college and over the next 18 months finished my bachelor's degree. And that felt good. That felt like it gave me a little bit of security. That same month, our daughter Deborah was born. 
With college out of the way, I began looking at theological schools again, but a second child and the desire to try one more time for a son made the looking half-hearted. I still didn't feel like we would be secure enough to leap out onto a new path, so I put the idea on a back burner. Two years later, in the spring of 1988, Claire was pregnant with our third child, the boy we had hoped for. So I put the idea on the back burner once again about going to seminary. Despite the possibility of a lawsuit with our previous landlord, we relocated the store so we could have greater visibility, slightly larger delivery area. And with that feat accomplished, I decided to try and buy a second store. See where this is going? (laughs) One of our friends had franchised with Domino's too, and he was having a hard time. So we offered him what seemed to be a reasonable amount of money to free himself of the stress he was under. It was about that time that I began to seriously think about giving up the ordained ministry. I liked what I was doing, or so I thought. I definitely liked the money we were making, and I began to think that perhaps God could use me as a layperson. In mid-June of that year, our pastor at the time, Reverend Dave Huffnagel, was preparing to leave for a new appointment in the United Methodist Way. And what I didn't know is that on his final Sunday, unbeknownst to me, he told Claire he was sure that I would be in seminary by the age of 30, less than two years away. A few weeks after Dave's departure, things got pretty bad for our friend who owned that store across town. We made one more offer to try and buy him out, and he wasn't interested. After a few days of negotiating, it became obvious things weren't going to work out. So I gave up on the idea altogether and decided to focus on ways to improve what we already had. But by mid-July of that year, I'd become bored and slightly depressed I didn't know why at the time, but it was highly unusual for me. And one particularly bad day, I left work early and went home to take a nap. That's one of the advantages of owning a business. You can do that. (laughs) I don't remember the conversation Claire and I had before I went into the bedroom to lie down, but she obviously sensed something was wrong because not long after I laid down, she was sitting on the side of the bed with me. What's wrong, she asked. And I started to weep. I was miserable. And slowly the answer to the question emerged. I was miserable because I knew I wasn't doing what God had called me to do when I was 15 years old. I had spent the last six years trying to create a sense of security for our lives. But I still didn't have it. I should have been in theological school many years before, but hadn't. And I confessed that to her. And you know what she said? So let's go. So let's go. I was a bit shocked. But there was a sense of joy in that too. 
how I had wished for that kind of faith. I'd spent six years trying to create that sense of security, and I still didn't have it, and here she was saying, let's throw caution to the wind, essentially. It took some time, but eventually I realized it wasn't just Claire speaking in that moment. There was also the voice of God in the midst of it, forcing me to face the contradictory realities of my life and life decisions. It wasn't as if God needed to teach me the lesson I'd known it for years. He merely needed to ask one simple question. What's wrong? What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with life as you have it right now and know it? And I knew the answer. I had just tried desperately to bury it. What was wrong was I'd gotten caught up in building my own sense of security. Like the farmer in the parable Jesus told, I wanted to fill my barns and build bigger ones. I wanted to be able to say, soul, you have ample good stored up for many years. Relax, you no longer need to worry about tomorrow. The problem is we humans don't tend to build barns that are just the right size. They're always a little bit bigger just in case some blessing comes our way we're not expecting. So no matter how much we have, there's always just a little bit more than we need to fill those barns. And when we get it, well, then what happens? The barns are full, so we got to build bigger ones. How much is enough? How much food, how much money, how much car, how much barn, how much stuff is enough to finally make us feel secure? How much house is enough? Because that in the end is what this story and my story and even our nation's story, and I believe at some level, even in your stories, it's really all about wanting a sense of security. It's about trying to slide off our backs the angst we sometimes feel our search for a sense of security, the brother thought he would feel more secure if he had control over his own fair share of the inheritance. The landowner thought he finally had found security by filling ever larger barns. I thought I would come to the day where I'd feel secure enough to do what I already knew God wanted me to do. But none of us would ever be satisfied if it was only about the things we might accumulate because there's no security in material possessions. And we can never find a sense of security on our own, not as long as we continue to say, in the dollar we trust. The only way we can ever relax and stop worrying about our security is when we stop depending on ourselves and begin depending on the Lord. The material things of this world are fleeting. It doesn't matter how much you've got. You can lose it all overnight. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, we hear Jesus say these words. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, 
There also will you find your heart. Have you ever stopped to consider how much our economy is built on this concern about security? Just take one example, the insurance industry in a couple of recessions ago. AAA wanted us all to believe they wanted to lower auto insurance premiums as a favor to all of us. But the real bottom line was they couldn't afford to continue carrying the risks of unlimited medical liability. When even the insurance companies are getting nervous, you know things are tough. In an interview with Marriage Partnership magazine some years ago, Tony Campolo did this, or said this, maybe the recession is God's way of telling people that you don't have to spend more and more money to have a quality of life. To build on that, maybe God is also reminding us that more and more money will not make us feel secure or happy in the end. In our married life, Claire and I went through the boom of the 80s when more people made more money than ever before. And then came the 90s and there was this deep, deep sense of uncertainty about the future. Money didn't buy us happiness and it didn't make us feel any more secure And here we go again, another big recession. Hopefully, we'll be taken care of quickly, but we just don't know. Money didn't buy us happiness. It won't ever do that. But too easily, we get caught up into building barns to house our goods, caught up in building a sense of material security. But there is so much more to life than things and money and wealth. So God invites us to build a very different kind of barn, a storehouse of faith, and then the courage to fill it with faith in him and faith in his promises. And if that sounds like a difficult or overwhelming thing to do, remember this. No matter how small that storehouse of faith may be to start with, God will fill it to overflowing. So do this. No matter how small that storehouse of faith may start with, know that God will continue to fill it to overflowing. Then among the blessings he places there will be what's necessary to expand your storehouse of faith. And when you've done it, he'll fill it to overflowing again and again and again as you share that abundance with others. How much is enough? When we rely on ourselves and on material things to find our sense of security in this world, there's never enough. Because one's security, one's life, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. But if we rely on God, if we set aside the false material securities and concerns of this world and build a storehouse of faith, God has promised to take care of us. Whatever God provides for us should always be enough. For only in God is there true security. And only in God can we ever really relax and set aside the concerns of this world and sit at the feet of Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, we give you thanks for your word that calls us to remember that our future is not wrapped up in our bank accounts or our homes or 401Ks, that our future is wrapped up with Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, help us to follow you, to listen to the lessons you long to teach us. May we hear them and act upon them. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.